I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 96. Once again, I I owe listeners an apology for the delay in getting this latest episode published. Now, this last pause has officially been the longest pause since the beginning of the podcast. I won't bore you with the details of why. It has been a difficult period for me on a number of fronts, and I wondered when the moment would arrive again when hope would spring eternal and I could look up from everything else in life and be granted a chance to start writing the next episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. And more importantly, to pivot from the lighted sorrows of the day. I don't want to get all melancholy on you, but life has had its challenges for each of us. And no matter how difficult things become, I know for sure that you just have to stay at it. You just have to stay at it. I am reminded that it's not so easy to do that for everyone in this world. I'll share a local story with you that punctuates this very point. I live in a condo in South Florida, and a couple of weeks ago, a middle-aged man who lives here made his way to the catwalk on a high floor of our building and threw himself over, ending his life. He had a wife and a child, I am told. I didn't know him. But I wondered still, what in life was so bad for him, so intolerable that he could not just stay at it? That the pain and the suffering was so incredible that for him, this must have become his only path out. What a tragedy. It's hard for others to understand or even comprehend what fears each of us harbor privately in our own minds. But I am reminded constantly that whatever your personal circumstance, hope is one of the ingredients for all of us to abate those fears. When hope is lost, everything changes. So this little wander before we start the episode is about not losing hope. Real hope, that is, not not false hope. Don't do it. Don't lose real hope. I hope each of you are staying at it, so to speak, in life. Whatever staying at it means for you, personally. Something resonated with me this past week that really emphasized this point. It was a conversation I overheard about what was unattainable in someone's life. I was at the airport, waiting to board a plane, and in my eavesdrop of someone else's conversation, I heard just enough to be so clearly reminded that you must decide whether something in life that is really important to you, but perhaps seems unattainable, well, you must first decide whether it's worth fighting for. And if it is worth fighting for, then next asking, are your chances truly real when it comes to obtaining this seemingly unattainable thing? That is the trickiest of all questions when hope is not in the room. But if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then the only question you can dare ask yourself is how you summon the courage to stay at it. For this is the only path available to most 
mere mortals like you and I, when it comes to obtaining the unattainable. And the only path that contains any hope of avoiding the evaporation of your life's streams right before your eyes. Because if you don't stay at it, they surely will. Sometimes it's the right choice to walk away from such challenges of this nature in life. But I have learned in life that most of the time it is not. Because those that stay at it are the only ones with a fighting chance to keep the dream alive. Oh well, enough of Shakespeare's lighted sorrows. Let's pivot to the episode. We are still wandering inside the details of the autopsy. We've heard from a lot of different characters who have participated in the autopsy, and a lot of characters who have studied the autopsy in a great deal of detail as well, but perhaps none who was so uniquely positioned to talk to us on the topic we are going to discuss today. And his name is Doug Horn. As you know from previous episodes, Doug Horn was the chief military analyst for the Assassination Records Review Board, and he was intimately involved in the deposition work and the evidence gathering that the ARRB performed related to the autopsy. We have heard so much in the form of various threads about so many topics during the autopsy. Well, it's part of being in the maze of the autopsy, lost in the details and wondering how it all must fit together. It's time to refocus our energy on one specific autopsy topic, one that Doug Horn did extensive work on. Doing this, I think, will help tie together one important topic that is key to concluding on so much of what we have been listening to up to this point. I think if you are a juror studying what happened that night at the autopsy, today's topic is, well seminal to making a decision on whether a smoking gun did truly exist that night at the autopsy. Okay, okay, what am I talking about here? Well, we have been tangentially touching upon the idea that the president's body arrived at Bethesda in a casket that was different than the casket that the president was placed in before he left Parkland Hospital. Two different caskets, You have heard solid bits and pieces of evidence on the topic, but they are strewn throughout the testimony and not collected together in one place. Today, using Doug Horn's work, along with some additional comments from David Lifton, we'll attempt to tie it all together in one place. Why is it important to go through this exercise today about the casket and related details? Simple. If the president's body was placed in one casket at Parkland, and arrived at Bethesda in a different casket, then clearly the chain of custody of the body was interrupted. That would then be an indisputable fact. If that were done for some simple reason, some logical reason that could have been easily explained, then all the men and women involved, well, the explanation would have been trumpeted as loudly as it could have been. And then it would have been case closed. Another detail with a simple, logical explanation, witnessed and explained by credible individuals. (laughs) The fact is, this was not the case. There was no logical and credible witnessing of the transfer between the two caskets, and no witness testimony to explain the transfer. So if it did occur without witnesses, or explanation, it is fairly logical to conclude that something nefarious went on here. 
And so today is an exercise in bringing together the evidence in a way that Doug Horn presents it, a way to make that case that the facts are unequivocal, that the president left Parkland in one casket and arrived at the Bethesda morgue in another. Other important details will be revealed as well in the conclusions that Doug Horn has made, and we will share them as I narrate this episode and series of episodes based on materials inside of Horn's Volume 4 of Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. So, without further ado, let's listen to Episode 96 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It might be shocking to you, but that bronze ceremonial casket that was seen on television by millions of Americans at about 6 o'clock p.m. that night of November 22nd, the casket that was seen being carried off of Air Force One, well, simply, it did not contain President Kennedy's body at the time it was taken off the airplane. That is a shocking revelation. What is the best evidence that this is the case? That the bronze casket was empty? Well, it was a document known as the Boyajian Report. This was an after-action report written on November 26, 1963 by the Marine Sergeant Boyajian, who was supervising the security detail from Washington, D.C.'s Marine Barracks. That report was provided to the ARRB and authenticated in writing by the sergeant himself. The Boyajian report specifically states that the president's body arrived at Bethesda at 6.35 p.m. or 18.35 hours in military time. The bronze casket, the ceremonial casket that the president was originally placed in at Parkland, was placed right there on television, into a gray ambulance for its ride to the Bethesda Naval Hospital, and it's well documented that the gray Navy ambulance did not arrive until either 6.53 or 6.55 p.m., depending upon the particular source referenced. And that this gray Navy ambulance carrying the ceremonial casket and the president's wife and brother, among others, as they arrived at Bethesda, was not driven away from the front of the building for about 12 minutes afterward, or it left somewhere between 7.05 or 7.07 p.m. to make its way around to the back side of the buildings where the morgue was. So we can safely conclude that the Boyajian report is describing an entirely different event that happened about 30 minutes before that an event where the president's body arrived at the morgue entrance well before the empty Dallas casket arrived in a Navy ambulance in front of the Naval Hospital. For that reason alone, the Dallas casket had to be empty, and there is no denying this essential conclusion. Today's discussion is all about that. There will be more from the Boyajian report, but there is much more in the string of evidence, as you know. So let's proceed. You have already heard the unequivocal audio testimony from First Class Petty Officer 
Dennis David, who was chief of the day at Bethesda Medical School Command on the day of the assassination. Petty Officer David, along with a group of seven or eight sailors that he supervised that evening, received what was understood to be the body of the president in an inexpensive shipping casket delivered by men in suits in a black Cadillac ambulance that was a hearse and that happened right at about 6.40 or 6.45 p.m. based on his accounting of it, remarkably consistent with the Boyajian report timing and other facts contained in Sergeant Boyajian's report that were independently developed and remarkably consistent over the years in terms of the narrative delivered to various researchers when Dennis David finally opened up about the facts after the threat of court-martial had been removed. Doug Horn has concluded that the story told by Dennis David and the evidence documented in the Boyajian report are one and the same event. That seems so, based on the facts at hand. It is very clear from Dennis David's accounting that After he actively engaged in helping to unload the shipping casket from a black hearse at the morgue loading dock entrance, well, sometime between 15 and 30 minutes later, he would then witness Jackie Kennedy arrive at the front of the Bethesda Naval Hospital in the light gray Navy ambulance that we know also contained the ceremonial bronze casket. He watched as Jackie emerged from the ambulance and entered the rotunda in the lobby of the hospital. I'll say it again. First, Dennis David helped to unload the inexpensive shipping casket at the entrance to the morgue at about 6.40 p.m. And then, somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes afterward, the ceremonial bronze casket arrived in full view of the press and the public at the front entrance of the hospital. The Boyajian report was a late arriver to the assassination scene. Doug Horn was able to obtain it in 1997 for the ARRB based on a tip by researcher Kathleen Cunningham. What the report does is solidly corroborate that the vehicle actually carrying the president's body arrived much earlier at the morgue entrance than the arrival of the official naval ambulance vehicle that was carrying the ceremonial bronze casket. The ceremonial bronze casket, so guarded over by Jackie and Bobby as they made their way to Bethesda, the casket that everyone assumed the president was in at the moment. But really, he was not. In a taped audio interview on July 2, 1979, Dennis David would recall more details of that moment, and one of them was that the two ambulance attendants in the front of that black hearse were wearing white smocks. There were some important characters that were there, right there, right then, at that moment, the moment that the inexpensive shipping casket arrived. Those characters included... Humes and Boswell, the Navy Surgeon General, the heads of the Army and Air Force Medical Departments. They were all there. And later, much later, Dr. Boswell would later confirm that President Kennedy's body had been in the casket that Dennis David and these sailors took into the morgue anteroom. You will also recall from a previous episode the audio we presented where Dennis David, in a taped video interview by David Lifton in October 1980, was shown a picture of the bronze ceremonial shipping casket taken at Love Field 
as it was just about to be delivered through the door of Air Force One, and after seeing that clear picture of the casket, he emphatically denied that the casket seen in that picture was the one that they removed from the black limousine and carried into the morgue anteroom. Unequivocally, he stated that the two caskets were totally different. Dennis David would repeat essentially the same details in a telephone interview by the ARRB on February 14, 1997. The call was not taped, but a report was made right afterward. Now, let's turn to Paul O'Connor. O'Connor was the grade E-4 Navy corpsman who we have also heard from in previous episodes, who was present at the autopsy and worked closely with James Jenkins. O'Connor would recall a cheap metal aluminum shipping casket that was a pinkish gray slate type gray and that used head screws to secure the casket lid. He also recalled witnessing the president in a zippered black body bag as the top of the shipping casket was removed and the body itself was to be revealed. It was a zippered bag that ran all the way from the head down to the toes and the president was nude inside the bag with a white sheet wrapped around his head. We have also introduced you to Floyd Reby in a previous episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. As you recall, Reby was a grade E-5 Navy corpsman and he was a medical photography student working for John Stringer. Stringer was the official autopsy photographer, as you recall. Reby recalled that the casket was not a viewing casket because the lid did not open halfway down and the whole lid came off in one piece. And he also recalled the turnbuckles and the thumb screws. And he also recalled that the body was in a rubberized body bag with a zipper. He would also describe the casket as plain and gunmetal gray in color with the lid being solidly one piece. Now, let's turn to Gerald Custer, another player in this drama that you have heard extensively from in past episodes. Custer was the x-ray technician assisting Dr. Ebersol. Custer was also one who explicitly stated during a video interview in October 1980 that Jackie Kennedy entered the main lobby of the Bethesda Hospital and Custer witnessed that event on his way upstairs to process x-rays that he had already taken of President Kennedy's body. During a videotaped interview of Custer on July 14, 1989, Custer also recalled seeing the president's body in a body bag, and he recalled the head-to-toe zipper on the bag and also repeated that the president's body was nude. During a deposition taken by the ARRB on October 28, 1997, Custer would contradict himself on this point. His earlier 1979 and 1989 interviews with Lifton, where he said the president was not in a body bag. Custer would also point out that he saw a second casket upon returning to the morgue, and there is speculation by Horn that the second casket was the bronze shipping casket finally delivered empty to the rear of the morgue after the fact and then brought into the anteroom. Ed Reed has not really been discussed or possibly even mentioned at all in earlier episodes. He was a grade E-4 Navy corpsman and another x-ray technician, and he also stated in an ARRB deposition taken on October 21, 
1997, that the president was in a typical military aluminum casket or stainless steel or aluminum, one or the other. And he also remembers that the U.S. Marines were present when the casket arrived. More recently, you heard from James Jenkins, who was another great E-4 Navy corpsman and another autopsy technician similar to Paul O'Connor. He recalled the casket as not ornamental and that it was plain, awful clean, and not something you would expect a president to be in. He would later describe it in another research interview taken by William Law as a plain coffin like the ones used to transport bodies in. Finally, there is Captain John Stover, the commanding officer of the Bethesda Naval Medical School, and in an audio-taped phone interview in April 1980, taken by David Lifton, he referred to the casket as a transport coffin, and he said he remembered seeing a body bag. He would, and I quote, say, I think I remember seeing a body bag peeled off. Let's pause for a moment and conclude on what we just heard summarized. Doug Horn would point out that considering the number of witnesses involved and the passage of time prior to the interviews that were conducted, that there is a remarkable degree of consensus between the different accounts and little disagreement. Perhaps with the exception of Custer, who disowned his own previous body bag testimony in 1997. And to be fair, Custer contradicted himself on a number of issues over the years. Dennis David, Paul O'Connor, Floyd Reby, and Ed Reed all provided a uniform and consistent description of a shipping casket. A casket that was quite different from the bronze ceremonial viewing coffin procured in Dallas. Horn believes that these descriptions in the aggregate would likely be persuasive to just about any jury. It's now a question for you as a juror. There is more. Ed Reed's consistent recollection of the Marines being associated with a casket entry indicates to Doug Horn that Reed witnessed the arrival of a shipping casket at 6.35 p.m., the same one written about by Marine Sergeant Boyajian in his report and to which Boyajian assigned part of his Marine detail. And going further, the mere fact that Ed Reed did not recall seeing the Joint Service Casket Team or the four federal agents in black suits pushing a casket on a dolly, all of that only reinforces that the casket entry that Ed Reed witnessed is significant and was likely the earliest arrival of the various caskets that made their way into the morgue that night. Now, let's back up the tape and talk to two key witnesses who provide unassailable evidence that President Kennedy's body did not leave Parkland Hospital in either a shipping casket or a body bag. Again, a simple test that would conclude the chain of custody was lost, at least for a time, and the body was transferred for some reason, and that there is good reason to believe that something else happened to it. Captured on film in October 1980, David Lifton spoke with ambulance driver Aubrey Reich, who worked for the O'Neill Funeral Home in Dallas in 1963. Reich helped to place JFK's body inside the bronze ceremonial viewing coffin inside Trauma Room 1 at Parkland Hospital. 
Reich told Lifton that he was absolutely certain that the president's body had not been placed in a body bag before the casket was sealed. Reich also told Lifton that the extra bed sheet and a plastic mattress liner had been placed inside the still-empty bronze ceremonial casket and that they had both been used as a liner to protect the expensive installed satin lining in the viewing casket. It was placed there to keep body fluids from leaking into the casket during transit. The body was wrapped in sheets and afterwards had been placed inside the coffin on top of the plastic mattress liner and had not been placed in any kind of bag whatsoever, according to Reich. Reich would go on to tell Lifton that he personally witnessed Mr. O'Neill, the owner of the funeral home, close the lid of the bronze coffin and that after the lid was closed, that Reich stayed with the casket until it was placed in the O'Neill Funeral Home Ambulance and then driven directly to Love Field. Horn would do more research to determine whether or not JFK's torso was placed into the bronze casket nude or with a sheet wrapped around its body. This question was important because Paul O'Connor claimed that when the president's body was received at the Bethesda morgue, Inside a body bag, the body was nude, and the sheet was wrapped around the head. So to Horn, the true question was, were we dealing with a true break in the chain of custody, or just the appearance of it? That was the question that Horn posed. Horn would go on to review the written statements of the nurses and the medical orderlies who had washed President Kennedy's body and prepared it for transport after he was declared dead. These statements are all part of the Warren Commission price exhibits, so named because the hospital administrator who assembled them was Mr. C.J. Price. In Price Exhibit 30, Nurse Margaret Hinchcliffe wrote that after Mrs. Kennedy and the priests left the room, Miss Boron and myself, with the assistance of David Sanders, the orderly, prepared the body but this was a start, and it only begged more questions. In Price Exhibit 25, the orderly David Sanders wrote, I heard someone calling me, and it was Mrs. Nelson, telling me to go to Trauma Room 1, where two other nurses and I undressed the president, giving his valuables to the Secret Service man. We cleaned up the president's face on the order of one of the Secret Service men, the O'Neill ambulance came with a casket, putting a plastic cover in the inside of the casket. We then put the president's body in it. In Price Exhibit Number 12, Nurse Diana Boron wrote, Miss Hinchcliffe and myself prepared the body by removing the remaining clothes, placing them with the others, which Miss Hinchcliffe gave to a security officer. We then washed the blood from the president's face and body and covered him with a sheet, during this time, we were assisted by David Sanders, the orderly who cleaned the floor and removed dirty instruments. After a short while, the casket arrived in which we were to place the president's body. When Mrs. Kennedy had left, we placed the president's body on a plastic sheet in the casket. So you see, all of this made it fairly clear that the plastic sheet had been used to line the casket 
but it was unclear exactly what Mrs. Boron had meant when she wrote that they had covered him with a sheet. Was that just temporarily covering the president's body before it was placed nude in the bronze coffin? Or was JFK's body wrapped in a sheet? There was just more work to be done on this, and Horn got after it. I'll spare you the details, but this is what Horn concluded about the body wrappings in Dallas. The president's torso was wrapped in either one or two white sheets while he was inside trauma room one and before being placed inside the bronze casket. There was a separate, smaller white sheet wrapped around his head, likely three sheets in all, and then Finally, a plastic sheet was placed in the casket and Kennedy's body was placed on top of the flat plastic sheet. The combination of the Reich interviews, the Price exhibits, and subsequent work done with Diana Boron by researcher David Livingston and supplementing Price Exhibit Number 5 all together were enough to paint a pretty straightforward picture of what the picture of the president was as they closed the casket and sealed it up at Parkland in Trauma Room 1. And the bottom line is that it did not, it does not, match up with the picture of the president as the casket was opened that night at Bethesda in the morgue. So what does all of this mean? Well, I think, very simply, it is that President Kennedy's body arrived at Bethesda in a different casket that night, a different one from which it left Parkland Hospital. It is, in Doug Horn's opinion, beyond dispute. Simply put, the evidence available around the shipping casket and the body bag provide a medico-legal proof that the body was intercepted in transit and that its chain of custody was broken and that there was an opportunity to tamper with JFK's wounds in transit. The implications of this conclusion are profound, for it means that JFK's wounds might very well have been tampered with. The idea that this may have taken place was summarily dismissed by Dr. Humes. He attempted to do this in a JAMA interview, which took place in May of 1992, as the controversy continued to swirl generally within the medical community itself. And of course, there are such indicators that the body was tampered with somewhere en route to Bethesda. And we'll get to that in the next episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Thank you for listening to episode 96 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 